Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my pleasure to welcome Susan Foote here to speak. Um, she has written a book, The Crusade for Forgotten Souls, Reforming Minnesota's Mental Institutions, 1946 to 1954. Uh, this book won the Minnesota Book Award for Nonfiction in 2019. And let me tell you a little bit about Susan. Um, Susan Bartlett Foote was born and raised in San Francisco. She got her law degree from UC Berkeley. Um, her career has been focused the entire time on health policy. She was on the faculty at UC Haas School of Business. She spent 10 years in Washington, D.C. as a Senate staffer and consultant to public agencies and private companies. She was the chair of the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Minnesota, and she's been a board member for large nonprofit hospital systems and medical device companies. She's currently Professor Emerita at the University of Minnesota. Her husband is the former U.S. Senator from Minnesota, Dave Durenberger, who's here tonight too. Um, and I met Susan because Senator Durenberger gave a speech last summer on his book, which was uh, greatly titled, uh, When Republicans Were Progressive. <laughs> one, of the, one of the best titles of last year's lectures. <laughs> so Susan, thank you very much for coming. Well, you can take the girl out of San Francisco, but you can't take San Francisco out of the girl. So I'm glad to be back home here in my hometown, and it's an honor to be asked to speak at the Commonwealth Club, so thank you, George, very much. The topic, broadly speaking, is mental health, which all of you know is a huge social problem in America. It afflicts the rich and poor, the young and old, all races, ethnicities, it's embedded in our, our homelessness crisis, which San Francisco is now known for, and the criminal justice or injustice system um, reveals the flaws in our health care and social welfare systems. So bottom line, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of unmet need. And I do want to say before I start that with all the criticism of the system, which um, we, we know there is, there are thousands of professionals in schools, in clinics, in hospitals, in health policy, in nonprofits, and in the courts, as well as family members seeking care for their loved ones. And many of you here tonight are among those professionals who are doing incredible work for needy people despite the systemic problems we face. And that's something we need to always keep in mind. Well, I was invited here to talk about my book, The Crusade for Forgotten Souls. Um, and you may well ask, what can an effort in the 1940s in Minnesota tell us about current problems? And I know you Californians, when you hear the word Minnesota, you feel sorry for the people who live there. <laughs> um, but let me tell you, it is a, a wonderful place to live. And did make an enormous contribution that we'll talk about. Important insights and inspiration, too, from the courageous and visionary people, individuals, that led the first statewide mental health reform in the 20th century, which I stumbled upon, and which nobody even in Minnesota knows anything about. I didn't look for this story. It found me. 
I was just an innocent retired professor of health policy. And in 2013, literally, a bag full of papers fell on my head while I was cleaning out my son's closet. <laughs> now, son's a grown-up, but, you know, we do those kinds of things <laughs> for sons. Um, and what was it? It was a bag. It was like a grocery store bag. And in it was a scrapbook of clippings from the 1940s with pictures of the governor, some speeches that had been typed on an old manual typewriter, some graphic photos from the institutions, and some reports, all about this mental health reform effort. And they were all papers from his grandfather, who was my former father-in-law, Arthur Foote, who had been the minister at Unity a Unitarian Church in St. Paul from 1945 to 1970. And I want to mention that one of his great-grandsons of Arthur Foote is here tonight. So Arthur Foote, who passed away in 1999, had played an important role in this reform. And these were his mementos, things he'd saved when he retired in 1970 and had saved for 30 years. And when he died, his eldest daughter distributed various papers to various grandchildren, and Ben had moved to Minnesota, and so she thought, well, I'll send some Minnesota stuff to him. And they sat in his closet for years, waiting to be found. So they fell on my head, and I, going through these old papers and photos, I just I felt in my bones that there was a story. At first blush, and to the extent anyone remembers this bit of Minnesota history, Governor Luther Youngdahl, who is a Swedish Republican Lutheran, which in Minnesota means a whole lot. Everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> but here, less so, so we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. And he gets all the credit. And in fact, he's responsible for the title of the book, which is The Crusade for Forgotten Souls. That was his name for this political effort. But four years of research and writing later, and I was a little bit crazed in the research process, um, an odyssey of discovery, this story of these ordinary people who had persuaded this governor to take up the cause and were his strongest allies and trusted advisors and built a statewide citizens' movement that broke through the stigma of shame, which was so extraordinarily powerful. It still is, and then it was... Um, probably more so. So Minnesota in this process became the only state to do comprehensive reform and during that period catapulted Minnesota for a short time from among the worst of all the states in the union to a model for the future. So tonight I want to introduce you to some of these extraordinary people in the book, give you a little bit of a sense of the arc of the story and then we'll have a chance to reflect on what it means for today and the problems of today. And just quickly to get you, uh, to orient you. Oops. This is a picture of um, some of the institutions. Um, at the time of our story, Minnesota had seven um, called insane asylums and one large state institution for the feeble-minded and the imbeciles, which is the term they used. And these institutions in California had a bunch of them, too. Napa State Hospital was one of the first. They're all over the state. Um, this was what was going on in the nation. 
there was an, at the sort of the late 19th century a national wave for optimism for cures if you could separate people from society and create a better, healthier, um, constructed society, um, and optimism for cures. And there was a building boom uh, all, over, uh, all over the country. Um, and most of the institutions looked like this, which to us in our modern eyes look pretty forbidding and um, off-putting, to say the least. At the time of our story, the conditions in these institutions were horrific. They had, over time, become very overcrowded. Um, um, the buildings were dilapidated. The food was unpalatable. Um, the conditions, that's a, that's a uh, shower room in, uh, in uh, Rochester State Hospital at the time. And the worst of all, those pictures, are the use of restraints. Those ladies, they're Minnesotans in the 1940s, were um, strapped to the benches in straitjackets. And at the time of the story, there were 15,000 Minnesotans in these seven institutions, and the conditions were at an all-time low. Um, the, the information comes from the U U.S. Public Health Service did data among the states, and Minnesota was among the worst in the nation in terms of per capita spending, pennies a day, staffing ratios, and excessive use of restraints. So the question you ask when you see this is, why didn't somebody care? And the problem was a system which was cynical and secretive from the top, and this was true all over the country, the governor and the state bureaucracy set the meager budgets, kept the institutions closed from the public, did almost no oversight, and let the superintendents um, serve basically like kings of the castle. And the power of the stigma and the silence and humiliation kept people, including people who had family members in the institutions, both uninformed and silent. So who were these 15,000 Minnesotans? 80% um, involuntary, committed, adjudicated, insane. About 30% were senile elderly. This was our long-term care system at the time. They had no other place to go. Many others were misfits, people family wanted out of the way, people with transient problems, such as grieving widows or people with the term was used unbalanced by the Depression. No money, no place to go, terrified, um, and some with advanced syphilis. It was very easy at the time for husbands to commit wives, their wives, on their own word. Um, so there were many uh, women in the institutions that would fall into this misfit category. And the rest, about half, with a whole range of disorders we identify today as mental illness, although there was poor diagnostics at the time, but probably the uh, schizophrenia, bipolar, and depression. And lumped in and governed similarly were the feeble-minded imbeciles, people today we would call developmentally disabled, infants and children with mild to severe intellectual impairments. What kind of care did they get at this time? The superintendent was a psychiatrist but rarely offered any services. There were very few treatments. Uh, electroshock, which was used mainly for social control and punitive uh, reasons, and in some places lobotomies that came in in the 1940s. 
Few, if any, drugs, Thorazine, would come a decade later. There were occasionally doctors around to do medical treatment or to sign off on the electroshock and a small cadre of nurses, but most of the work was done by what was called at the time attendants, people who had an eighth grade or less education, basically custodial, or by patients, the able-bodied, who all had to work. So at the time of this story, there were stirrings of national awareness in the post-World War II period, um, generated, and this I found very interesting when I discovered it, conscientious objectors who were assigned to work in the institutions when many of the male attendants were drafted. They were educated and um, humanitarian by, by nature, and they were horrified. And their concern led to a controversial expose in Life magazine. And the old folks here, like me, remember Life magazine, which was the source of information for people, pictures that you didn't see because there was no television or any way other to kind of get the graphic image. Um, And these young men, toward the end of the war, um, formed a National Mental Health Foundation um, to begin to publicize the problems in in the institutions. But most of the states, and Minnesota was one, from the governors on down, controlled the message. And in the local papers, St. Paul Pioneer Press, as it's called, ran a story a few months later saying, no snake pits in Minnesota, all was well here, the paper repeating the party line that the people in the institutions are well cared for, that negative stories upset families needlessly. Of course, we could use more money, but trust us to spend it. So this is the message that people got. So here was the puzzle as I began to learn about this. Reading the old clippings, I wondered, how did it start? How did this movement start in Minnesota? And I first looked to a biography of, um, of Luther Youngdahl. I don't know if I put him in here yet. Um, it had some pages dedicated to the reform topic, but there was one line that intrigued me. It all started with Angla Shea, an attendant in the mental hospitals. And I thought, who is this Angla? And I learned it means angel in Norwegian. She wasn't mentioned in any of the newspaper articles or any of the materials. So I began digging in census records and town newspapers and so on, But an ordinary person doesn't leave much of a paper trail, particularly someone born in 1895 in northern Minnesota. But then, this was was when I knew it was a book, when I hit the historian's jackpot. Um, Angla had never married and had no children, but she had two sisters and a brother, and I traced through old newspapers and obituaries down to Facebook and wrote to relatives or people I thought were relatives that, that I could locate. And a few months later, I got a text from a woman in eastern Wisconsin who said, I'm Angla's great-great-niece, and I found her diaries and other papers when I put my grandmother in a nursing home. 
She, of course, wouldn't send anything to me. They were precious to her. So I grabbed a Norwegian friend for credibility and uh, drove through a, a snowstorm in January of 2014 and arrived to find this incredible trove of, of documents. And I spent days reading and transcribing the journals, which painted a really dismal picture of what went on in the institutions. And it's, these are so valuable because... She was not a reporter looking for sensationalism like a Nellie Bly, you know, back in the 19th century. And she wasn't a pseudo-patient. You know, there's stories of uh, people being sent in to pretend they're patients in an undercover study. She worked there. She lived there. And she saw. And she wanted to be a writer, And so the stories she wrote about patients where she gave them names. They were people to her. They were not forgotten souls. And she shares them with us. And so I may be the official author of this book, but when I won the Minnesota Book Award, I dedicated the award. It makes me emotional to her. So in addition to her papers, and let me give you a little pictures. I had never seen pictures of her until I found the trove she, you know, um, there's the homestead. She's the little girl in the, you know, in the striped little two-year-old in the homestead. And that's her family. And then there's a picture of her about the age she was when she began working in the institutions. And it was through them that I, through the, those stories, that her life be, really be, became um, fleshed out. Um, conflict in the family, and so on. But one story that she wrote was key to her drive, uh, a story that must have been so painful to her that she wrote it in the third person, but the facts lined up perfectly. In 1928, her father, who she adored, checked himself into Fergus Falls State Hospital, which was one of those buildings that that, uh, I showed you, in a deep depression. He was a free thinker, in a community that did not appreciate free thinking. They were all very fire and brimstone Lutherans in northern Minnesota. He was ostracized from the community, but he always adored his oldest daughter. And the book is full of these um, um, uh, information and and, uh, quotes from her own work about, about this. And the motivation, and this is what you look for when you're, when you're, finding people who have this kind of um, inspiration to make change, um, what motivates them? And what motivated her was that her father was in the institution. And in this story, she, she goes to visit her father, and he doesn't want to see her and says, I don't want to remember you. I want to forget the past. All my life, I have been so alone. And so she writes, that night she, because it was third person, tried to piece together her father's tragic life and curse fate that it should have dealt thus with such a wonderful man. Her mind went back again to a quotation she used to answer the roll call with in grammar school. Do something worth living for. Do something worth dying for. Do something to show there's a mind, heart, and soul within you. And that was her motivation. And soon after, she 
crashed the gates, as she said, and was hired at Anoka State Hospital. Angla was a pretty tough cookie, but she was shocked when she got there. She writes in her diary, I refuse to put a patient in camisole, that's the euphemism for straitjacket, right off the bat, and I took a patient who had crouched like a dog on a leash, tied in a six-stool toilet out on a porch, and I objected to camisole patients having all of their supper, including dessert and liquid, served in a tin bowl and scooped into them like slopping the hogs. So I got off to a bad start. So in these early years and in her early diaries, after that bad start, she hoped to show her skills and try to change things from within and um, build relationships with the patients, but she was denied opportunities. She was labeled a troublemaker, um, uh, could never get promotion. She took courses at the university in her own steam, on her own steam, but she was rebuffed by doctors and ridiculed by the nurses particularly the supervisor. Um, But a few years later, I guess it was about six years later, she got wind of these conscientious objectors and their National Mental Health Foundation. And she jumped on the bandwagon and began what she called spreading the gospel of mental health reform and basically a one-woman frenetic crusade. And this, she got, she wrote to these guys. Now she had often wrote in her diary with a pencil because she, she didn't have a pen and ink. She had to save up for stamps. But she wrote to these conscientious objectors and kind of became the person to go to in Minnesota. So she first tried to get other people within the institution to... to um, understand that there was an organization trying to make things better in the institutions. She was labeled a trouble uh, maker. She tried to go up the chain of command. Think of this woman. She had no status. She was poor. She was middle-aged. She was unmarried, a spinster. Um, She had a low-level job. But faced with that, the denial in the hospital, she went to the number two person in the state... um, uh, division of Public Institutions, and her it's in the book, her description of him explaining why they had to tie people up is, is harrowing. And her comment was, there isn't any point wasting your breast with psychiatrists. So she went outside the system, targeting churches, unions, and writers as possible sources that would understand what was going on in the institutions and maybe do something. And her diary in 1946 is full of these adventures. She was hitchhiking up from Rochester to the Twin Cities, buttonholing people. Um, And she approached her pastor at this First Unitarian Society, which is another part of the story that she had discovered and joined in 1943. And uh, she wanted him to contribute money but she educated him about what was going on. And that was a turning point, because a few months later, in 1946, um, these Unitarians, who were just a small little sect, um, basically, in Minnesota, a couple of thousand in the whole state, invited her to participate in in a statewide conference. And the Unitarians were interested in doing something to make the world a better place as 
as we came out of the Second World War. And you, you can now kind of get a sense of people want to do something because so much pain and suffering had occurred during the war. And um, the pastor had, had determined that maybe, maybe mental health would be what they would do. And so she was invited to the conference, and some of the people who at, at the conference um, basically said, it's not as bad as they say. And Angla, God, you just love this woman. She was not intimidated. And this is from her diary. She wrote in her diary, I stood up and volunteered. You have not gone to the highest authority. These men are so far removed from patients and low-level personnel, they don't know what's cooking. Take a dance band out and dance with the patients. Talk to them. Then you will get an idea of what needs to be done in mental hospitals. This is revolutionary. Nobody talked to any of the patients. Think of this. And the Unitarians were persuaded. So you remember the times, you know, this, as I said, this middle-aged woman, unmarried, unintimidated. And she became, unbeknownst to anyone until, this, until I found her, the first mental health reform advocate in the state of Minnesota. Maybe in the nation in this time. And it takes incredible courage. But at this point, she passed the baton to this group of Unitarians who were a new set of reformers. Um, And the leader who was chosen, as I uh, mentioned before, was the young Arthur Foote of St. Paul. He was 31 years old. And the group voted to study the issue for a year. What? I was very surprised when I first saw that, since the conditions are so bad. Study it for a year? Some wanted to go right to the legislature and tell them, you know, they got to make changes. Um, But Arthur Foote restrained them because he rejected the notion that immediate action is always effective action. And this was his quote. It was doubtless assumed that a knowledge of conditions would result in action for improvement. The arduous climb over the road from anger and protest through indignant challenge to responsible study and analysis and cooperative sympathetic service was not even dreamt of by those who took the action. But that was the, the philosophy that he um, convinced the group to take, and it was absolutely the right strategy. If they had rushed off to the legislature without really knowing much of what was going on, just outrage it would have failed in 1947. So they had a year of study um, and a a lot of description in the book. Um, But basically, the Unitarian group, their issues fell into two categories, conditions for patients and staffing changes. Not only just for the attendance, the training and so on, but um, all sorts of other uh, skills to be brought into the system. Um, And by the end of that year, 1947, they were ready to go public. And the book has some wonderful people that are described that I don't have time to talk about here who took some of these issues and really worked them through. And they were ready, not only with a definition of the problem, but with solutions to go forward. So at the end of 1947, Arthur Foote, his job was to um, uh, engineer the going public 
of their, of their mission. And the first um, was to get the press. They needed the press to report and tell the truth. And he went to a young reporter. She was 22, 23 years old, fresh out of the university, um, terrific woman, in the fall of 1947. And you'll enjoy getting to know her in the book. Um, here's a picture of her. Her name was Jerry Hoffner. Um, and uh, she agreed that that would be um, something that they could do. And her editor also agreed They told her to inform the governor, and this is a wonderful dramatic moment in the story because the governor, she went to tell him that that was the plan, and he said, if you do this story, I will have your job. Um, She went back home. They decided she could do the story uh, and would come out in the spring, but it was certainly a red flag to the governor, And here's a picture of her now. She's 96, and she lives in the Shalom home in in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I gave a talk there, and she stood up, and she remembered it was like yesterday. And she told um, the, the members of the audience what it was like in the institutions. She went and lived in them with a photographer. And um, uh, it, it, it's the only person that's still alive, who was a, a participant in this story. And, and there she is. I have to show her picture. So there was some worry about how they were going to get the governor or, you know, the political support. Then a few weeks later, Arthur Foote gave his first public speech, hard-hitting but fair. The story in the newspaper was inflammatory, and the governor called him up the next day, and demanded he come in for a dressing down. And again, another dramatic in the moment in the book. Um, and there explains why the governor was so upset um, and worried about this, this uh, reporter and then this, you know, half-baked uh, Unitarian coming in. But after Arthur explained to him what the conditions were, and the governor knew he was right, he was afraid of the politics. And Arthur Foote, who had no political experience at all, and the governor, who of course was a politician, Arthur said to the governor, it is only political dynamite in hands other than your own. (laughs) And he knew then the politician got it, right? He knew if he took charge and got out ahead of the issue and owned it, that could be his issue. Now, the book um, explains um, more of um, uh, Luther Youngdahl's motivations and so on, and, and I won't go into the details here. It hadn't been, health, mental health hadn't been an issue to him before, but he was, and that's the title of his book, he really took this Christianity to heart, not like what we sometimes see now, but it was, he was a believer in the ultimate humanity of the people. And he used biblical quotations about our obligations to the least among us. And so he used his Lutheran religious faith to, to see the humanity in these people. And so it's no accident he used the word soul, crusade for forgotten souls. He was also 
a Republican, which may surprise all of you, but as, as uh, George uh, mentioned, there was a strain of very progressive Republicans at this time of which he was a part. Um, and again, the, when Republicans were progressive by Dave Dernberger is worth reading to get a sense of that. We spent a lot of time talking about it, these, you know, 60 or 70 year ago politics. Um, but he was willing, among other things, to use government to do good, because that was part of this um, uh, progressive strain. So he took on this issue, and it was true leadership in the best sense. He knew it was the right thing to do. He knew it was an uphill battle. He knew he had to build a movement. And in order to do that, he had to first win in 1948, win re-election. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. And so then the book goes on to to show how, with the leadership of Luther Youngdahl and the intellectual capital of these Unitarians, that they built a social movement. And it is remarkable because it had never happened before with this, with this topic of mental health. He didn't get any support from churches or any of the major uh, institutions. So this governor, who believed in going to the people, created his own citizens' committee with prominent citizens of all faiths. And the Unitarians fanned out, and there were lots of radio programs all talking about what the problems were and what needed to be done. And Jerry uh, Hoffner's 12-part series in the, um, in the um, Minneapolis newspaper really galvanized the public because it had the graphic pictures and, and, and incredibly powerful... Um, story. So it freed up families. This was so important. It freed up families and neighbors and friends. If the governor is talking about it, we can talk about it. And a statewide movement was born. And then the book tells you the story of that campaign and then the legislative session. Um, He won in the campaign and um, uh, he he immediately put the Unitarians to work. They wrote most of the legislation. Um, And it was uh, passed, and he was a national hero, and the Governor's Association, you know, gave parties for him, and um, he was a hero. And here's a picture of Luther Youngdahl signing the bill, and this is an iconic picture and this shows the intensity of his leadership. That's him a few months later burning the straitjackets at Anoka State Hospital as a, a sign to the public that the implementation of the reform would begin. And I met this 96, 95-year-old lady who was an attendant at Anoka who was there, who was there. But the core features of the legislation, the centerpiece of the legislation, was 
fundamental human guarantees, that was the term that they used, that all mental patients were entitled to, including dignity. This is 1949. The first time in the United States, as far as I know, there was a recognition of civil rights for mental uh, patients. Um, I don't think you can make change in the area of mental health, even today, unless that fundamental human right to dignity is the core. Is the core. Because as one civil rights attorney has said, once you start to dehumanize people, there are no limits and no sense of obligation to them. So under this legislation, they were not to be a despised um, minority. Then the other provisions of the, of the legislation that are so important are what they intended to do. Um, and uh, Luther Youngdahl appointed a visionary psychiatrist, a Jewish psychiatrist from northern Minnesota, who had been a, a superintendent at Hastings Hospital, who had abolished restraints long ago in his own hospital. Why? Because he said they didn't work. He was a man who knew kindness and understanding of patients. Um, and his job was to implement the law. The implementation was critically important, the vision, because they envisioned, and this is really so remarkable, a new system, a system of care. Not just these hospitals. The system, in order to to um, provide these fundamental rights. And the system was under Rawson's guidance. They had a, a commissioner of mental health, which I don't think any state had anything like that. And he was to bring together all the pieces, not just the hospitals, but community, education, and um, help get the elderly into a more appropriate places. There was a sort of a nascent nursing home movement, or they called it rest homes at the time. But the point was to um, coordinate, and they had the leader in welfare policy, who was also a Unitarian, who had helped write some of the legislation, uh, engaged in that as well. But the interesting thing is they were not going to close the hospitals. That came 20 25 years later, they were going to make them, under the vision of, of Ralph Rawson, places of care and treatment. And that was built into the legislation as well. Rawson, who had relations with the university, persuaded the university for the first time to be involved, to have the ability, because Rawson's view was, if you can't help somebody, you've got to figure out how. Now, they didn't have all the science, they didn't have all that um, uh, information we have now, but that was the motivation. And I often wonder if that had, that had been the movement rather than close the institutions which were hell holes, but to make them not hell holes and provide a safe place for people who needed, who needed uh, care in a caring environment. Now, Maybe that would, would have been a better way. So that was the, the vision, and change began to happen almost right away. And you can see it in Angla's diaries. You can see it in a subsequent Life magazine article. 
and um, and in lots of the uh, stories that Jerry Hoffner wrote as a follow-up. In fact, Life magazine called Minnesota a shining star in this area. Angla moved to Hastings State Hospital two months after the passage of the law with a new title, Psychiatric Aid, Civil Service Wages, Job Security, and she became part of a psychiatric team with direct input on patient care. And with her higher wages, she bought a typewriter. (laughs) So that was the dream, and it was happening. Dr. Rawson said he needed 10 years. He only got two. What happened? The popular governor, Youngdahl, was re-elected in 1950, but the 1951 legislature, filled with Republican conservatives who were gunning for him, wanted to stop him in their tracks because they didn't like the direction that he was taking the, um, the Republican Party. And they attacked the effort, reduced the budgets, uh, cut out the research money, um, and um, it was very devastating. And they, he lost many of the Democrats who had been his supporters because he proposed raising taxes on beer. Plus, the Korean War was looming, and people were distracted, and there's lots of discussion in the book of all the reasons. Um, So at the end of that that legislative session in 51, um, Luther Youngdahl was pretty down. And that summer, Hubert Humphrey, the new Democratic senator from Minnesota, engineered with... um, Harry Truman, an appointment for Youngdahl to the federal bench in Washington, D.C., and he accepted. Most people say it was because he had a heart condition. I say it because he had a broken heart. He was devastated. He was humiliated at the end of that legislative session. He couldn't take it, and he went back to law, which was his field, and took the job, and his successor was basically captive of a hostile uh, bureaucrat, and the state lost the political leadership, and the institute and, um, and the Unitarians were closed out of the political process, and the public moved on. And after about five years, Minnesota fell back to the average. So in some ways, it's a sad history, and we all know the history of the national process um, subsequently with, you know, the misuse of some of the new drugs and the chemical restraints and the failed effort of Kennedy to build community clinics um, and the backlash against the abuses of the hospital and the closing of the, of the hospitals with no, no place for people to go. Um, most states had some care for the least impaired, but severe forms of uh, illness were cast aside, people with severe forms. We all know this story. California is now the poster child for the worst problems. Just because of the magnitude of the size of the state, people were pushed outside onto the streets and into homeless shelters. And for many, the road led to prison and mass incarceration, which was also another um, uh, movement taking, taking hold private and public insurance programs um, deny or underfund mental health needs, 
And in many states, we see the rise of what they now call forensic hospitals, which are just repurposed mental institutions, as bad as the asylums were. There's two in Minnesota, there's five in California. They're basically holding tanks for the criminal justice system, and over 90% of the people who are in these hospitals have been referred there if they can get a bed from the, from the prisons. And the prisons themselves, which have many mental patients in them, are exactly the dehumanizing places that are the worst places for anyone with any mental illnesses to survive. I'm not saying there weren't some improvements over the years. There are a lot of advocates who've worked at all sorts of levels, and there have been good things and bad things in Minnesota. It's just a wash of working groups and commissions and task forces. And, you know, something happens good here and something else happens bad there. Uh, Our um, leader of the the, um, National Alliance of Mental Illness in Minnesota said the system isn't broken. We never built it. We didn't build it. And somewhere in those 1940s with those reformers and the leadership of of, uh, Luther Youngdahl, they were building it. They did the blueprint. Um, But nowhere have we built a a, a system. And I know um, California has done a lot of things, but they do not have a functioning mental health system. So I'll just conclude with what, what can we learn from the nearly forgotten and short-lived experience in Minnesota? The first is political leadership. And it's not just an issue. Mental health can't just be an issue. The leader, like Luther Youngdahl, has to embrace the cause with urgency, knowing humanity is crying out. And leadership was, you know, brought Luther Youngdahl to, to develop, with the help of these these folks, a broad and deep systemic change. Leaders find the way to share the passion and urgency and guide the passion of laws and implementation of them. And that's why I say I often wonder what might have happened if Luther Youngdahl hadn't left and had kept the faith and had stayed the course and had gone on to fight for another day. Um, But he didn't, so we'll never know. The, we, the other thing for change requires this vision and strategy and implementation skills that Dr. Ralph Rawson had in spades, uh, and he really did begin to make the blueprint a reality. But you have to be able to implement, not just talk about it. I did find a quote from your governor, Gavin Newsom, who said, we need bold leadership, we need a strategic vision, and we lack the political will. And I thought, okay, he's got the right words. Does he have it behind him? Can he do it? Will he do it? And um, that's what, that's what you, you need. Um, in his budget message this week, he talked about homelessness and the crisis and related mental illness and so on. I'm not a voter here. It seemed like a good sign to me. It's better than I've seen in Minnesota in the last 10 years, but that's what we need. And the final lesson that, that we learned from this, this period of time in Minnesota was the critical importance of an engaged citizenry. Minnesota really teaches what a community can accomplish if they put their minds to it. And Anglishay 
the first mental health advocate, unsung, unknown, unbowed, and never stopped fighting. And the Unitarians and the citizens who joined them, um, the best they could do afterwards was start to form advocacy groups, which are still there today, and it still matters. It still matters. And someone who's here tonight said to me she would have brought friends to the talk, but there was a NAMI meeting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Continue the fight. In the end, politics are fickle and change is hard. And this, this is the picture I have in my mind to inspire people. Luther Youngdahl came back to Minnesota while he was a judge to an event at Hastings State Hospital where Ralph Rawson had retreated after the commissioner position had been abolished. It was to honor the volunteers who were primarily from Unity Church who, was, who were volunteering to work with patients in the hospital. And Angla was working there at the time, and I hope she was at this event. But Luther Youngdahl sadly recognized that the reform had stopped at the first step. And he said, quote, We must tell the lessons of the first step, or what we spent will have been wasted, and on that mound of waste will lie the shattered hopes of our patients and their families. So I see it as my job, having found these people, to tell about that first step. And as he later admonished the crowd with words that are as true today as they were in 1954, Protection of the patient requires our eternal vigilance. Thank you. Do we have I'd like time? to remind our radio and online listeners that they're listening to Susan Bartlett Foote speaking about her book, The Crusade for Forgotten Souls, which was uh, about reforming Minnesota's mental institutions in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, it's time for questions, if anybody has one. I, I, I have one. I, has anything else happened to your life where a bag of information has landed on top of your head that, that has changed your direction? I mean, is this common? No. David, is this, can you tell us? I'm, I'm waiting for another bag. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who would like to ask you a question? Hi. I, I have a statement and a question because I'm former vice president of San Francisco NAMI, and I'm now the outreach coordinator for a group called the Northern California Committee on Psychiatric Resources. And California has passed the Mental Health Services Act, which is supposed to bring services to the community for the severely mentally ill, but it is being usurped by Governor Newsom, Daryl Steinberg, because they want to take that money for all kinds of homeless people. No place like home will provide housing, but no support there for people with serious mental illness. And so I urge all the citizens of San Francisco to read the newspapers, all the reports by Heather Knight and Dominic Franca about the system in San Francisco that is discarding the seriously mentally ill who are not able to ask for voluntary services. And we do need a return to real asylum where people can get better. 
And right now, 45% of the jail population in the city is seriously mentally ill. And so I, I applaud you with your book. I have a friend, does Minnesota still have state hospitals? Because it is my understanding, at least in 2003, I know people who were kept in the state hospital for a year and got a lot better. Whereas California has turned the hospitals into forensics. Yeah. And Napa has really good treatment, but once you get there, you've done something horrible and you can never get out. Hmm. Well, thank you for your commitment. And Minnesota does have two of their old hospitals are now like the forensic hospitals, like Napa. And the older ones have been converted into what they call regional treatment centers that have been, you know, some have been under watch by the feds for all sorts of violations, and others, you know, do provide some decent services. But sad. it's sad, yeah. Next question. All right. Well, there's one over there. Okay, great. I always like this. I always like to see the light. Is there any light anywhere in the world, any country, any city, any county, or any state that's on the right track and funded? There's the light. There's the light. There's the light. It's people. We've got to do it. People have got to do it. Trieste, Italy. Trieste, Italy, right. It, it, you could, I'll, I have to look it up, but they've done away with, uh, the people can go to the hospital if they want to. They've, um, they just have a different system, and um, it was written up, I think, in the New York Times, but I mm -hmm. can't remember exactly. Okay. Well, it's clear that it's, you know, there's so many other humanitarian issues that, that get people's attention, too. But um, it, it's when are we going to be motivated? And I think, at least in San Francisco, there's a lot of effort to be motivated now because of the homeless problem, as the homeless problem keeps going up. So hopefully we'll be able to take the things that are in place and the information that's in place and bring it out and say that we, we have a solution to this or, or we've already looked into this and we should use that information. Thank you very much. Um, you know, the uh, homeless and the mentally ill, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. There is some overlap. But where do you, where do you see the, the greatest good in terms of policy? Where, where can politics approach this for the greatest good? Well, that's a, a wonderful question. I, I don't really have an answer to that. Um, you know, that there are... There are big problems in different parts of the system. The insurance coverage issues are terrible. So, you know, you can, you can fix... If you could fix that, that would rectify, for a lot of people, simply the access to the care they need without being, you know, denied coverage or um, paid so low that people can't or don't bother to even serve that population because it's so difficult or the paperwork. You know, there are these pieces that I think you could probably be effectively addressed, but in terms of having a, 
a comprehensive system that people can, as you say, find the right place for the right kind of care. You know, the, it, it's, there, there's so many moving parts. And I admire advocates who, who try to address it, and I'm, I'm not the expert on solving the problem as much as I am um, focused on wh- where can we get the leadership and the vision to start working on it um, uh, uh, effectively. But I think one of the things you, you, you pointed out in the Minnesota experience was that a lot of the patients were, were just elderly people who would become senile. And, and we have taken that group of the population and, and has started treating but you them know, differently. I've, I've read about it here at Laguna Honda. We've had this problem in Minnesota. Vulnerable people... Vulnerable people are taken advantage of in places so that nursing homes aren't necessarily all safe places. No, yes. oh, absolutely not. But, but, but I think w- w- where I wanted to go with that was what you said, where, where in the Venn diagram do the homeless and the mentally ill overlap? And I thought we have several people here that work in this area. Is anybody in the audience willing with their expertise to add something about sort of how much the population is, should yeah. be treated one way and how much should be treated I, another way? I think the data is that about a third of the homeless population, right, have a treatable um, mental illness uh-huh. that co- has resulted in their homelessness. And then the challenges of living on the streets bring in the criminal justice system. So there is overlap, and clearly... Clearly, the inadequate, un, un, you know, uh, housing in urban areas, and particularly in San Francisco, um, affect more than the mentally ill. Addressing that problem would be helpful, but it shouldn't be at the expense of the treatment that people need. Mm. Right? There was a. There was another question over here. So, just your book is so spectacular, Susie. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, does Gavin Newsom have a citizens committee on this? And does San Francisco have a citizens committee on this? And I just wanted to add to that that in terms of um, care, treatment for the mentally ill, one of the big problems is that there are many people with mental illness who part of their illness is that they are not able to recognize that they are ill. And those are the people that really fall through the cracks because they go in for six weeks and are on medication, and then they're released. And, of course, when they're out, they don't take medication, and they just go down and down and down as they age. They just get worse and worse and worse. So those are the people that could be addressed by institutions Mm -hmm. because there's no way other I, I don't know of another way to help them. I mean we haven't come up with Yeah, that. and I I've talked to people at Mayo who are working on those kinds of uh, pl- developing a place, but they're they're hindered by the fact that in our hatred of the big institutions we have all these size limitations to payment. And in order to have a place big enough that you can have properly trained staff available to people, you need more than 13 beds 
or whatever the, the bed range is. I think it's that. But I have, in talking about this, and this is all piecemeal, this is not systemic change, but come across places that treat the issue that you're talking about as um, um, assisted living. Some of us need physical assistance. Some of us need other forms of assistance. And you can develop a place where people have as much independence as they can manage happily and assistance where they need it. There's a place in Minnesota, I met the director of it, that where they help each other. And it's tied to housing, it's tied to employment, and, um, and their view is also, we provide the place that works for the people who are there. It's not cheap, but it's not... Um, it's, it's constructive for the people there. And I think there are probably many of those around, around the country. That doesn't solve these massive issues of California, but it gives you some sense that if people of good heart and good expertise think about these things, they, they can and have the resources, there are ways to design it. It's never going to be great for everybody all the time. But um, I, I think that the reaction against the institutions was so intense, and rightfully so, that it, um, but without alternatives, it, you know, it doesn't work. So, One of the hardest policy things to do, of course, is to take on a problem that whatever you do for it, you, you create another problem or, or something else, and to decide when is this good enough and what's better than, than what it could be otherwise. You know, I mean, institutions were bad, but on the streets is worse, yes. But what can we do to the institutions, make them as good as possible, given the fact that you're only going to pay so much? And it's always very, very difficult. And I think that's why, why I like to go about problems by saying, how do we minimize the problem? If you try to get rid of the problem, you, there's, you, you never come up with a plan, I think, that works, because there's always going to be some problem, because it's basically a problem situation, I mean, a problematic situation. Uh, time for one last question, or? I don't know if I actually have a solution, but in a, I didn't even think about this. I used to work for Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute, which was part of UCSF, mm -hmm. and they treated children and adolescents. And I was a special ed treat, a teacher within the system, and I have to admit, I spent the majority of the time with children, and I got very upset and decided I'd either have to become a physician or a psychologist because they weren't listening to me. And I felt like English Shea when I read your yeah. book. <laughs> oh, good. But there was one good thing about it, is that the groups that they had of children were small enough, and it was tied into the special ed funding, and it was attached to the university med center. So it actually did work. We, we got to keep the kids for maybe three months, six months. Some kids were there longer, but they got pretty good care. When we compare with, with what's going on with the adults and homelessness, which I really don't know very much about, but there is a, something, if you can get a medical center, because we got a lot of interns through, and they're kind of like free help. 
I mean, <laughs> right? And a lot of psychiatrists, a lot of really top-flight people were there. And that might be some way where we could put a, a, a mental institution, or so to speak, and stick it with a, um, a, um, a medical center. And then you have a lot of people coming and going, and I think that's what you need. Pardon me? They closed. They closed. One of those things that you said, too, was, was kind of painful. It was like, like but the interns you can have for almost free. And it just reminded me of all the Catholic nuns that worked in all the hospitals and how cheap it was. It's very nice, but, of course, we can't, can't go back to the system of asking some people to contribute everything of their life to, to do that. I know interns would only last a short amount of time, but, but that's, that's a whole other issue and a whole other problem. So thank you very, very much, Susan, thank for uh, bringing this. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. <laughs>